Good morning. Good to be with you all today. Normally during this hour, I'm in our life group over here at room 104, so I don't get to see y'all. And uh, so it's good to be with y'all this morning. So uh, today we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And um, following in the series that we've been in uh, the whole time, uh, I guess probably for the last, I don't know, um, last several weeks. And so um, this this particular passage has got some stuff. It's pretty tough. I like what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16. He said that Paul has some writings that are kind of hard to understand, but he goes on to say that unstable people will distort the scriptures. I'm going to do my best not to distort the scriptures today. All right? So, but there is some stuff that's got to, it's, it's kind of hard to understand, just to be honest with you. And we'll try to navigate our way through them and um, bring as much clarity to them as, as possible. So again, if you've got your Bibles, open it up to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. So verse 1, Paul says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And being gathered to him, that's what he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 about us being called up to be with the Lord. He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. Now, last week, you remember we had the Bible Project people that they presented this the animation that they did and they talked about this teaching that was allegedly from Paul and how it had ticked Paul off. Paul says, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So this teaching clearly is not from Paul. It's clearly contrary to what Paul had been teaching this group of believers there at the, at the church. And and it was, again, it was ticking Paul off. I love what the ESV says about that particular verse, about not become easily unsettled. It kind of states it a little bit stronger. It says, not to become quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Basically, I believe what he was saying is that don't let your, run, your, your, your thinking run off the rails. Don't let it get so far away that it begins to make you question your faith. I think the principle is here is don't allow your mind to take you where the Spirit is not leading you. Don't allow that to happen. Look, I'd heard a pastor say years and years ago, he, he referred to it as stinking thinking. And that's what happens sometimes. Our thinking gets so clouded that it begins to take us places that we shouldn't go. And Paul is warning this group of believers here about that don't become quickly shaken in mind. Because, and we'll learn this next week, these folks were willing to shut it down. They were willing just to hang out to wait to see. Why do you think that it would just tick Paul off so badly? I think, remember, if we just think back, this is a new group of believers. We know that this passage was written somewhere around A.D. 52, A.D. 53, that these folks were pretty new in their faith. And what would happen with new believers? Because remember, there was a persecution coming. We, were, we know that A.D. 70 was the height of Christian persecution in the first century. 
It was the destruction of Jerusalem. It was destroyed and persecution was at its height. This is about 17 years or so prior to that. And as it goes on, it gets worse and worse. The persecution does. So what would that, what could that possibly lead to with new believers? Possibly it could lead them to go, maybe things that Paul said wasn't true. Maybe, maybe we didn't earn the right to be with Jesus. Maybe we, maybe we weren't good enough. Maybe this is a hoax. Maybe all that stuff that Paul's been telling us about, maybe that stuff's just a hoax. Maybe it's just not true anyhow. Paul was clearly upset that this had happened and he wanted to get them back on track as fast as he could. So I've been coming to church here, I don't know, close to 11 years. When I first started coming here, we didn't have this. We were in pews, and we were facing the front up there. Was anybody here back then when we had the pews? Y'all remember? We had pews, right? Our staff, Sonny, Craig, Matt, and others, have been here for 12 years making disciples. I'm one of them. I'm one of them that they're, they're in the process of making I became a believer in March 18th of 1981. So for 42 years, I've been a believer in Christ and these folks are discipling me every week. You know, Craig's always challenging us to live incarnationally, live in the moment of the Bible story, the story that's going on, live inside that moment. I want to do just the opposite. I want to bring that story to today. Today, what if... Somebody come up with a word or a prophecy that just simply wasn't true that made us to begin to question our faith. Question, were we good enough? Was all that stuff that our, our staff, that we've been singing about, that we've been teaching about, that we've been praying over you, is it, what if it's not true? What if that stuff is a hoax? Could you see what that would do to our staff? How that would crush them, how they would be much like Paul, they probably would be ticked off and they would immediately want to say, hold up, hold up, hold up. That's not what's going on here. You can't listen to that stuff. Don't be so easily shaken in mind. And that's just simply what Paul is saying. Paul's telling this little group of believers, please, whatever you do, don't let your thinking take you where the Spirit is not leading you. Because God's Spirit is not going to, it's not going to contradict His Word, period. It can't. They're one and the same. So, Acts 17, verse 11, the writer says this, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is that period in Acts where Paul is actually in Thessalonica and he's actually teaching the Verses 1 through 10 there in 17 talked about Paul going immediately to the synagogue and teaching regularly over and over. And those, those Berean Jews, they were of noble character. They would go back and they would study the word to see if it was true. What Paul said was true. What if we applied that to our lives today? The things that were said up here on this platform to see if they were true. 
Can I have a moment of transparency with you about my teaching? Last time I got an opportunity to speak, I was teaching about the family and I was talking about leadership in the family and I was talking about how, how as the leader of the family, how we should just be, oh, much like David. You know, when David had that fight with the lion and the bear and he took the jawbone of a donkey and he beat him, well, Guy Davison after church, he, he catches me over here. He goes, hey, that story you were telling um, about David, and was, you, you sure that wasn't Samson? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was David. So I go back and I look at it. Oh, it was clearly Samson. It's clearly. Isn't it good to have people in our church that know the word of God? It, guy, we can just call him a person of more noble character. Because he reads God's word. Can I just tell you just the last message I messed up again? I was talking about this horror story in Joshua 19. And so somebody came up to me after church and they were like, this is, the, this is the allotment of the land. Where's the horror story in this? I said, well, if you get more land than I get, that's a horror story, right? I said, but if you'll flip over to Judges 19, you'll really see a good horror story. Because that's where the horror story is, is, Judges 19, not Joshua. If you get more land than I get, I don't care. All right? Hey, it's good to have people. I want to tell you, I want to challenge you to be like the Bereans today. It's interesting. John Piper did 51 little teachings on chapter 1, 2, and 3 of 2 Thessalonians. In three weeks, we're going through all three chapters. This is something for you to, to dig into, to study over and over and over. I just want to challenge you to be like the Bereans. So verse 3 and verse 4, Paul says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. The rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. There's two things that must happen. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So we're starting to really get into the darkness of what's going to happen prior to Christ's return, right? Things are going to get tough for those that are here prior to that. So let's look at it. So the first thing is that this, this, this rebellion, it is the rebellion, it's not this slow erosion of Christian values that we've probably seen over the 20th century, the 21st century. This is an emphatic event that takes place. This is a falling away from Christ. This is the apostasy that Paul is talking about here. It is an immediate falling away from Christ. This is when things start to get really, really bad. And, and then after that, Along with that is the man of lawlessness is revealed. Clearly, this is the Antichrist that Paul is talking about. And we will see that again in verse 8, I believe, in exceptional clarity. So those things haven't happened yet. We all probably would love for Jesus to return today. I would love for Jesus to return today. I have a little 18-month-old granddaughter. I would love for her not to have to put up with the secret power of the lawlessness one. 
the one that's lawless that we see in verse 7. But it's not going to happen today. Look, I don't know when God's going to come back. I don't know when Christ's return will happen. I just know this. It's going to happen really quickly. When he decides to come, it's going to happen quickly. So, one of the things that you see here or you don't see here is that Paul never really talks about the Antichrist. In fact, he doesn't use the word, the Antichrist is what I want you to hear. He doesn't use that. Paul talks about the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, but he doesn't, talk, he doesn't call this person the Antichrist. In fact, the only where you'll see that in the Bible is through the Apostle John. In 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4.3, and then in 2 John Verse 7, he refers to him as the Antichrist. Now, again, I, I'm challenging you to study this because there could be some debate if this is one of the Antichrist because John says in verse 18 of chapter 2 that talks about plural Antichrist, but I believe wholeheartedly this is the Antichrist that Paul is talking about here. Let me tell you something about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the crown jewel of Satan. It is exactly the tool that Satan wants to use to draw people away from Christ. We'll see this in a little bit. Satan and the Antichrist, they work in darkness. They work in confusion. They work through deceitfulness. They work in daylight. They do everything they possibly can to draw, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, if possible, even the elect away from Christ. On the other hand, I want you to know that Jesus is the crown jewel of God the Father. I wrote some things here. I just want to read them because I don't want to misquote what I'd written here. But Jesus, he works in and through love. He presents clarity and truth. He exhibits peace, hope, and love. He despises deceitfulness. His goal is to draw you and I into a relationship with himself through the Holy Spirit to honor God the Father with our lives for all of eternity. The Greek prefix anti has two meanings. Against and instead of. So, Meaning that Satan not only opposes Christ and everything about Christ, but Satan also wants to be worshipped instead of Christ. You can look at Isaiah 14, go through 12 through 15. It lays it out. It's pretty interesting. Well, some say, well, maybe that's Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it could be, but it clearly looks like he's talking about Satan to me. Clearly. Verses 5, 6, and 7. And for me, this is where it gets to some of that really hard stuff to understand. Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And you know what is holding him back, talking about the man of lawlessness. So that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. Now, clearly, I understand verse 5. That, that's pretty easy for me to understand. Don't you, don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? What were the things you think you used to tell them? Maybe that stuff in Isaiah. Maybe that stuff in Daniel, chapter 7 through chapter 12. Maybe that was the stuff that Paul was talking about. Paul doesn't tell us here what he says, what he was saying at that time. 
I bet it probably, if you remember last week from the Bible Project, they talked about Mark 13. I bet it was some of that stuff. I bet it was some of the stuff that Jesus said also in Matthew 24. Because they were both talking, Jesus was talking about the end times during that. And though Paul did not walk side by side with the physical Jesus, he did walk side by side with Peter. And no doubt, no doubt, Peter said, you won't believe some of the things he told us. And he told us about this, this return, this coming back, and how it's going to be, and all these signs and wonders that were going to happen. We'll talk more about that in a minute. What I find really interesting is this verse 7 here. That a couple thousand years ago, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Huh. Huh. Kind of see it already at work today here too, right? I don't think the enemy slowed down. Look, Satan knows the timetable. He knows when the end is for him. The Antichrist knows when the end is. But these, they, they are determined to do all they can to draw us away from Christ. They know they have a limited time to do it. And it's just going to get more and more and more intense, much like the persecution of the church did. Satan will not let up. will do all he can to turn us away. Now, what I really think is in is verse 8. Because Paul's been telling this group of believers for these first seven verses, like things are about to get bad. When before Christ returned, before he comes back, all of these things are going to happen and it is going to be difficult for you and I. But then he writes, verse 8, and then the lawless one or lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. My Jesus, my King Jesus is going to go, and the Antichrist has gone bye-bye. Just by the splendor of his coming, he's going to destroy him. I love what the ESV says. It gets a little bit more graphic. It says, by the breath of his mouth, he's going to kill the man of lawlessness. That's my Jesus. That, that's the Jesus that we have an opportunity to live our lives for. That's the Jesus that we do see in Revelation 3.20. This is, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That Jesus Christ is knocking on that heart's door. The one that with his breath goes, and the Antichrist goes bye-bye. That same Jesus wants to live in our lives. On March 18th of 1981, it was a Wednesday night, Pastor Jim Mullins, we were at church. My wife was my girlfriend at the time, and she's, she's got me going to church, and I'm really not interested in anything until that day. And on that day, I couldn't take it anymore. I remember telling him, something's going on. My heart is beating out of my chest. I can't take this anymore. And he said, that's Jesus Christ, and he's knocking at your heart's door, Stoney. Do you want him to come into your life? Yes, yes, let's do this now. Yes. That's the same Jesus that with the breath of his mouth 
Let me tell you something else about this same Jesus. He's the same Jesus that hung on a cross. Isaiah 52, 14 says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form was marred beyond human likeness. That's the sacrifice that my Jesus gave so that he could knock on our heart's door and invite us in and he would come in and live with us. And that same Jesus is the one that with his breath destroys the Antichrist. Just one more thing about King Jesus. Sonny talked a little bit about it last week in Revelation. This is Revelation 5, verses 2 through 5, and then verses 11 through 14. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was uh, no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumph. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was, slave, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever for always. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down in worship. That is King Jesus. That is the one who wants to live inside of us. That's the one that goes, and the Antichrist is gone. So, Mindy will love this. If that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. I just want you to know that. If that's not exciting to you, that that King Jesus wants to live inside of you, man, do a checkup, all right? Just go straight to the doctor, get a checkup. That's exciting stuff to me, y'all. Unfortunately, though, that's the same Jesus that people walk away from. That's the same Jesus that people don't want anything to do with. That's the same Jesus that sometimes in public we're kind of embarrassed to bow our heads and pray out loud. That, that Jesus. That, that's the same Jesus that people make fun of you if you're committed to him. All he wants to do is love you and I. All he wants is for you and I just to love him. That Jesus does. Kind of reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 2. 
I got a little time, so I'm going to read the whole passage, just five verses. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. You used to love me when you were young. You were very close to me when you were young. You loved hanging out with me when you were young. Jeremiah writes that Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of the harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says, verse 5. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? The Lord's just saying, what fault did you find in me? I did everything I could. I was marred beyond recognition. I hung on a cross. I sacrificed once and for all for everyone. Why would would they stray from me? Why would they walk away? I want you to know this. He's full of love and compassion for you and me. And I want you to hear this because I don't want this to happen today. I don't want it to happen tomorrow. I don't want it to happen next year. I don't even want it to happen in the next 10 years, even for your lifetime. Please do not harden your hearts to this Jesus. Don't grieve the Spirit. Whatever we do, we don't give the enemy a foothold in any area of our lives. Verses 9 through 12 is as dark as Scripture gets to me. Again, it's not the horror story that Judges 19 has, but this is dark stuff here. Paul says the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Right off the bat, the lawless one is coming and it's going to be just as Satan wants him to do. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. This is ugly. This is Satan having his way. Remember, Holy Spirit, has been removed from holding them back. Now Satan is going to roam. Satan is going to do everything he can to draw us from Christ. Satan, I want you to understand this, has unnatural power that you and I can't compare with. We just can't. I, I want you to hear this. Satan is... Um, He's such a strong adversary. He's bigger than you and I. 
this is not a smoke you and I want to play with. Remember that great story of Abraham and Lot? And how they had all this land and like they had all these cows and sheep and all this other stuff. And Abraham's like, look, we got too much, we got too much livestock for this piece of land. Why don't we separate? You get first choice. So Lot kind of looks around, sees what's happened, and he hears the music. He hears the crowd. He, he smells the smell, and he's like, I don't want to get in Sodom and Gomorrah, but I sure would like to get close to it so I could check it out every now and then. He started playing with that smoke a little bit. He got a little close to it. Again, he didn't jump in it. Well, not then he didn't. And we saw what happened. Abraham had to come rescue him. He loses his wife. His two daughters wind up having sex with him in a cave. Satan has unnatural power. It's not a smoke we want to play with, y'all. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. John 4, 48, Jesus is talking to the government official that wants his, wants his son healed. And Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Satan knows that we are intrigued by these signs and wonders. He knows where our weakness is. And he's willing to perform these signs and wonders to draw, as Jesus said, even if possible, the elect away from Christ. Uh, look, I'm not an end times Bible prophecy guy. I don't study that. I got a neighbor down the road from me says he's been studying it for 40 years. I'm like, awesome. When is Jesus coming back? Can you just tell me? I'm not that guy. I do study God's word probably the last eight to 10 years, more than I ever have. Very committed to reading God's word. This I do know. I wish he would come back today. I do know this, for when this, before this happens, this is before he comes back, there's going to be some bad times here. John Piper identified four lies in this passage. He, the, the first lie, he says, is that there is no law. In verse 9, we see the coming of the lawless one. So Piper says that lie number one is there's no law. You can do what you want to do. You can think the way you want to think. You can act the way you want to act. You can do what you want to do because there is no law. You get to do it. It's your thing. Law number two or lie number two is that the lawless one is God. We saw that in verse four. Verse four, he said he sets himself up to be worshiped as God. Lie number three, that the truth is is not worth loving. We see that in the last part of verse 10. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Truth is our only hope, y'all. Lie number four is that wickedness, we see this in verse 12, is more delightful than truth. Paul writes, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. 
Satan uses some incredible lies to get to us. John 8, says that Satan is the father of lies. We see this coming true here. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's one spectrum of who Satan is. Listen to this other one. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So he can be a roaring lion and an angel of light. That's a pretty wide spectrum there, huh? And we think that we alone are able to entertain some of that. Not a chance. I, I like in Genesis what the Lord said to Cain. He said, if you do what's on your mind to do, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Wow. The only hope you and I have is the truth. It's the only hope for yesterday, the only hope for today, and it's the only hope for the future. This reminds me of this passage between this, this, this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. We see in John 18, verse 33 through 38. Did, did we have that, Caitlin? If you don't, I'll just read it. I've got it in my notes. Pilate then went back inside the place. He summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on this side of the truth listens to me. And then Pilate utters those three words that I believe is so applicable today. What is truth? I think our society is struggling with what is truth today, y'all. We just, we, we don't have a clue. I can tell you this though. Truth is this word right here. John 17 verses 14 through 17. Let's look at this real quick. He says, I have given them your word. This is Jesus and he's in a prayer and he's saying, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Can we be praying that from, for our group that's going to Peru? Can we just be praying that for them? Can we be praying for favor? Can we be praying that God would protect them from the evil one? Jesus said, they're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. If we're struggling today to figure out what is truth, will we please be like the Bereans and just simply go to God's word to find out what truth is? Because truth is contained here. Now, getting back to Paul's passage here. <laughs> Verse 15 or 13, 14, and 15. 
I think are so amazing. Because he said, all that stuff in those first 12 verses, that stuff's, that stuff's tough. Except for verse 8. Verse 8, the, it's the home run for us, right? But all that other stuff is very tough. So he says, but we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, you and I are loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. The foundation of salvation is truth. It is clearly the foundation of salvation. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you whether by word of mouth or by letter. Just read a couple things from my notes here. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is the process that draws us to holiness. It is the drawing of each other closer and closer to our Savior. Sin destroys holiness, but the Holy Spirit through the sanctification process draws us to holiness. I love what Romans 8.29 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you're ever struggling with what God's will is for your life, I want you to read Romans 8.29. God's will for our lives is to be conformed to his son, to be conformed like him. That is what the process of sanctification is all about. It is creating in us a holiness, a desire for holiness, the act of holiness that we would pull us away from sin so that we could be conformed in the image of, Christ, of, of God's Son. That's what sanctification is, and that's what God's will for our life is. Last little part here, and I'll wrap it up. In this world that we live in today, we must stand firm on the truth. It is the only thing. It's what Paul tells us to stand firm. And we got to hold fast to God's word. It is our only hope. We have to fall in love with the truth. This is accomplished through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit in our lives, working the sanctification process, Satan has his way. If we don't have the Holy Spirit working that sanctification process in our lives, Satan will have his way with us. Therefore, we can't grieve the Holy Spirit. You and I must desire holiness rather than delighting in wickedness or unrighteousness. The, these last two verses, they're a prayer. Paul does this throughout Thessalonians. He kind of ends the chapter with a prayer. So in the posture of praying, I'd like for us to just simply close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. And I want to read these last two verses in the form of a prayer. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us by his grace, gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, May encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.